I'm Stuart Brand. This seminar about long-term thinking is brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. If you would like to see high-quality videos of the talks in the series, including this one, they are available online for Long Now members at longnow.org. Good evening. I'm Stuart Brand from the Long Now Foundation. It's, um, as you know, the Long Now Foundation is building a 10,000-year clock, and we're so pleased and proud to be building something that can tick for 10,000 years. And then we find out from Rachel and others that quite a few things have been ticking for a kind of time, and uh, we're just trying to catch up to them. I think she's further proof that field biologists have more fun than anybody. And the question you might ask yourself, as you know, I'm a kind of a fan of genetic engineering and synthetic biology. Uh, as you watch these various species go by, think about which ones you might like to have some genes from to blend into your germline <laughs> <laughs> so that your children and grandchildren might be part olive tree or something. Rachel Sussman. Hello, thank you. It's such an honor to be here. Such a great audience at the Long Now. Um, so um, for the past five years, I've been researching, working with biologists, and traveling all over the world to photograph continuously living organisms that are 2,000 years old and older. Um, so the project is part fine art. My background is as a fine artist. Um, it's part science. There are philosophical elements and a strong environmental component. Um, and as you can see, there's a lot of thinking in a lot of different areas uh, happening. And I put together a little mind map. Um, but the primary reason that I'm here this evening is because at its core, this work really is about long-term thinking. Um, and I'm trying to provide a means in which for us to step outside of our quotidian experience of time and start to consider a deeper time scale. Um, so my idea for this project was to start at year zero and work backward from there. Um, and then in terms of scope, I'm trying to find a representative sample of every species that's met the 2,000-year mark. Um, so before I uh, dig into the work, I'm going to show you a lot of images this evening. I just wanted to take a quick moment to talk about art and science and my particular relationship with it. Um, so I depend upon scientific research in order to uh, be as accurate as possible in terms of, of dating these organisms. Um, so the, the science is basically supporting my work. Um, in some cases, I've, I've found that the research actually hasn't been done yet or is incomplete. So that was actually really surprising for me. Um, so this project has actually never been done before in the arts or the sciences. Um, now, there isn't actually an area of study that deals with this global species longevity, which is a term that I've, I've uh, made up, basically. Um, <clears throat> but in part, it's because um, the, the subject matter is too broad. Um, so rote scientific inquiry is ever specializing, which means that sometimes you're going to miss the forest for the trees. Um, so this evening, I'm going to ask you to travel back in time with me, um, and I'm, we're, we're going to start at 2,000 years and work our way back. Um, and I actually haven't uh, walked through the work chronologically before, so I thought that was appropriate for, uh, for long now. Um, this is a brain coral. It's the oldest brain, known brain coral in the world, um, and it lives in Tobago at about 60 feet depth, and it's about 18 feet across, so it's pretty big. 
Um, and I first found out about this through a scientist in London who I was just having a casual conversation with who happened to have gone uh, on vacation to Tobago and suggested that I check it out. Um, so the, the age of this, of this coral is estimated based on um, its size and its annual growth. Um, and there are a couple other corals that are um, part of the project that I haven't photographed yet. One's in Hawaii and one is in the frigid waters off of Scandinavia. Um, and those actually both require submersible pods in order to reach them. So I hope I get there. Um, but the corals are actually the only animals in the project, so we'll say goodbye to the animals. Um. So um, this is a baobab tree. When I was in uh, 2007, I had the opportunity to uh, travel around the Limpopo province in South Africa with um, a woman who's an expert in baobab trees, and she was doing research for, uh, for a book. And I'd started um, emailing some people and asked if anybody knew about the baobabs, and through a series of connections, I ended up um, at her doorstep in Johannesburg, and uh, we went on a little road trip. Um, so what she was doing was actually measuring the trees, um, their height and their girth, and um, has been looking at that data over an extended period of time. Um, but the baobabs are actually notor notoriously hard to date because they get pulpy at their centers. Um, but I'll get back to that in a minute. Um, this one is actually in the Kruger Game Preserve. So if you want to visit this tree, you actually need special permission and an armed escort. Um, but thankfully, that didn't prove necessary. And that's for lions and tigers and bears. Oh, my. Um, this is another baobab. Um, there are about four in this region that are thought to be around the 2,000-year range. Um, and it was winter, so the baobabs are deciduous. And it's, um, so during the rainy season, they actually would be full of leaves, but then you wouldn't see this beautiful uh, structure. Um, now, this tree lives on a private farm, and it was actually struck by lightning many, many years ago, and it was knocked on its side, and half of it was uprooted, but those exposed roots were uh, transformed into branches, um, so it's actually one of the more symmetrical baobabs that you'll see. And uh, this is the Sigoli baobab, which is most likely the oldest in the group. Um, and, you know, I think of all of these organisms as palimpsests. So not so much like layers of text on an ancient parchment, although this tree does have names carved into its trunk. Um, but I'm referring to the secondary definition um, where a thing contains its own history within itself. Um, so all of these organisms contain thousands of years of their own histories, uh, not to mention clues about climate and human activity. Um, so the baobabs I mentioned get very, tend to get pulpy at their centers as they get older. Um, so this can, uh, this can serve as a natural shelter for animals, um, but has also been appropriated for a number of dubious human uses, um, including a toilet, a prison, and even a bar inside one of these baobab trees. Yeah. Um, also in Africa, this is the Welwitchia, which is the national plant of Namibia. And the Welwitchia is only found in parts of coastal Namibia and Angola, um, where it's perfectly adapted to get almost all of its moisture from mist coming off of the sea. Um, and strangely enough, uh, the Welwitchia is actually a tree 
And if you see right there, it's actually bearing cones. It's a conifer. So it's a very primitive conifer in the Namibian desert. So very improbable. And what's even more interesting is that what looks like two piles of leaves are actually two single leaves that continue to grow and pile on top of each other. So it actually is the longest leaves in the plant kingdom. Um, and then they get all shredded up by the elements, by the wind and the, and the sand over time. Um, so this was just really fascinating to me. And so I talked to um, a biologist back at the Kirstenbosch Botanical Garden in Cape Town, Cape Town um, just to get some idea of how this thing came about. And his theory is that um, if you travel around Namibia, Namibia, you see that there are petrified forests all over the place. And they're all old... Um, uh, conifers. And so his theory is that tens of thousands of years ago, flooding swept these trees down from a more northern part of Africa. And then what happened was uh, the Welwitia just adapted and, be, and um, resulted from that flooding. And in fact, if you visit one of these uh, petrified forests, you see the old petrified log and at the top a baby Welwitia. Um, and now, um, and that was around 2,000 years old. Um, so now we're getting a little bit older. This is around 2150 here in California. And California has a number, a claim to a number of, of old things. Um, and there are um, four trees in the Sequoia National, uh, National Park that have been confirmed to be over 2,000 years old. Um, but the dendrochronologist that I spoke with there told me that there could be hundreds more. Um, but there aren't, the, there's, um, the resources aren't available to go around and date all of these trees, nor is there a scientific necessity for it. Um, although he did joke that the trees are all getting younger every year because their ages have been so wildly overestimated in the past. Um, um, now this is a favorite of mine as well. This is um, a Japanese cedar called Jomansugi. It's at least 2,180 years old. And um, this lives on the remote island of Yakushima in Japan. And this tree was actually the catalyst for this project. Um, so as I mentioned, I come from a fine art background. Um, and for years, what I was doing was making landscape work that uh, deals with the relationship between humanity and nature. And I was traveling a lot to do that. So so I went on this trip to Japan, and I didn't have an agenda other than to make photographs. Um, but people kept telling me, if that was what my interest was, I had to go visit this tree. I mean, it's called Jomansugi because it supposedly dates back to the Joman era in Japanese history, which I don't think is accurate. Um, but at any rate, I visited the tree. It was on this remote island, and then it was a two-day hike to find the tree once I got there. And it really made an impact on me. Um, and it was actually quite a while later. I, I was doing the math. I thought it was months later, but I realized it was over a year later that I got the idea to actually bring together these, my interest in art and science and philosophy into uh, this project. So that's when the, uh, the light bulb came on, if you will. Um, so, um, I began researching, and um, so, <clears throat> excuse me, so I began researching, and one of the, this is one of the uh, 
the trees that I found. This is the Fortingall yew, which again is around 2,000 years old, but might be much older. So these last couple uh, of examples, you see that I have an age range between two and 5,000 years here. Um, and whenever I have that range in the title, what I'm trying to do is illustrate the fact that the science might not be done yet, or it might not be that accurate. And in some cases, local lore will tend to overestimate the, these organisms far more than um, what they actually are. Um, so this particular tree is um, in a churchyard in Scotland, and you can see it's behind a protective wall. It has a little sign there that says the U, in case you missed that. Um, and it's actually fairly common um, if you travel around the UK to see that there are yews in churchyards. Um, but when you keep in mind the 2,000-year time frame, time frame, it's actually the yews that were there first, and then the churches were built around them. Um, so uh, back in the U.S., this is in the Malheur National Forest. This is an aerial photo, um, and if the title Searching for Armillaria Death Rings sounds a bit ominous, it is. Um, the armillaria is a predatory fungus, um, and it kills certain species of trees um, in this forest. There's also an armillaria, in, uh, individ large individual, in Michigan and another in Sweden. Um, but this is the oldest and the largest. Um, and it's um, perhaps more benignly known as the honey mushroom or the humongous fungus. Um. <laughs> Uh, so the armillaria actually kill certain trees in a circular pattern. So that's, I um, got some maps and some GPS coordinates from the biologists who uh, work as part of the forestry service. And I chartered a plane and I went looking for the death rings. Um, so I know that the fungus is underground here, but I'm not actually sure if I captured the, the, uh, the actual death rings. Um, but back on the ground... Um, this is actually a photo of the armillaria invading this tree. So the tree was already dead, um, and the biologist chopped into it with an axe. And then you see that the, um, this white material right here um, is known as the mycelial felt of the fungus. And what it's doing is actually slowly strangling the tree to death. So it's a slow and violent process. Um, so it's um, basically preventing the flow of water and nutrients. Um, and, but this, this fungus is pretty smart, if, if you can call a fungus smart. It actually won't invade these trees until after they've reached reproductive maturity. So it's basically ensuring its continued longevity by making sure it doesn't cut off its own, uh, deplete its own food supply. Um, so it's been doing that for 2,400 years. Um, another tree, um, this is the um, Alerce millenarian, and it's a Patagonian cypress. Um, and logging has destroyed much of the old, gro old growth forest. <clears throat> Um, in the uh, Valdivia region. Um, and I've, I've found a report of an Alerce being up to 3,600 years old, but I have a suspicion that it was actually a felled tree. Um, and there actually is another Alerce in the Alerce Castero National Forest that I, that I saw. Um, and it was spared an untimely death because um, when the loggers came through to chop it down, they found that it was partially hollow in the middle. So it actually is still standing today just with a big bite out of its side. 
Um, and then, um, much like the yews and Jomansugi, um, this tree, this is the Castagno de Cento Cavalli, the chestnut of 100 horses, um, and it's in the two to 4,000 range. Um, I believe that it's probably around 3,000, just because I saw a number of references that I've not actually been able to translate from the Italian, um, or Sicilian, actually. Um, so, um, but actually what's more easy to track down is the, the uh, the story that goes around this tree, which is that um, supposedly it's uh, provided shelter for a queen and a hundred of her knights as they were traveling to Mount Etna and a thunderstorm hit. So hence the uh, chestnut of a hundred horses. Um, so um, in terms of trees, the chestnut is really the only other exception to the evergreen rule. So it is, of course, deciduous. Um, and it was actually filled with chestnuts. You can't really see it from this shot. But it um, showed no sign of slowing down in terms of uh, bearing fruit, although you see that it actually needed some props to keep uh, the branches up there. Um, and I should mention, I just photographed the chestnut back in September. And while I'm um, in the area, I also photographed this olive tree. Um, and these trees are really points of pride for their local communities. Um, but you also see a lot of misinformation circulating in terms of their ages. Um, so I've seen references for this tree that it, it's up to 5,000 years old, but I've seen, found no scientific evidence to back that up. Um, that being said, it seems to be the oldest olive, olive tree in the world. Um, I know there have been claims that's something that's actually claimed quite frequently, having the oldest olive tree, including Israel and Palestine, but we won't go there. Um, so this tree is also actually hollow at its center. Um, and so while other trees of its generation were being cut down, that actually saved this tree because they put it to use. Um, it was actually serving as a chicken coop for quite a long time, for generations actually. So those chickens probably saved its life. Um, and this is a close-up of, of that same tree. Um, so it's actually, uh, it still has gainful employment, and the uh, branches from this tree are used to make Olympic wreaths, um, and the community is very proud of that. Um, in fact, there's a little museum and even a hedgerow shaped like the Olympic insignia in, in the lawn in front of the tree. Um, so, but, just to th but we can actually use that as a means to put this into some human perspective. Um, the first Olympics were said to be held in 70, um, 776 BCE in Greece. Um, so this would have put that tree at over 200 years at that time. Um, and it's still bearing olives. Um, and in fact, I collected some and tried to get them to sprout, but they didn't quite make it. Um, and from the Mediterranean, let's jump to, this is Greenland. Um, so this is not an oldest living thing, but I, I wanted to set the stage um, uh, for the next organism that I'm going to show you. Um, so for me, visiting Greenland was really primal and remote, like nothing I'd ever experienced. Um, and it really was like traveling back in time instead of just traveling very far north. Um, and in fact, I actually got somewhat lost on the other side of this fjord for a while um, with pretty much just myself and my wits. Um, so that was an incredibly humbling experience. Um, and it obviously worked out in the end. Um, here I am. <laughs> um, I just wanted to also note, I was, I was actually there meeting some Danish archaeologists who as an aside, we're doing lichenometry on some old Norse ruins, so using the lichens to help um, uh, date the Norse ruins that they were studying. 
uh, the lichen growth. Um, so these archaeologists actually took me fishing in a glacial stream, and they were literally pulling these foot-long or larger trout out of the water with their bare hands. There were so many of them. Um, so it was really, it was just like visiting the planet at a more innocent time. So it, it really had an impact on me. And the reason I was in Greenland was to photo, I was looking for lichens. Um, what do most people do when they go to Greenland? Um, so <laughs> I traveled there with an evolutionary biologist whom I met um, on a previous trip photographing the Siberian actinobacteria, which we'll get to in a little bit. Um, but what you're looking at now is a 3,000-year-old Rhizocarpin geographicum, or map lichen. Um, and there are reports of these lichens reaching up to 5,000 years, um, but our estimate was that this is about 3,000 years based on its size. Um, so these lichens grow one centimeter every 100 years. So if that uh, doesn't put human lifespans into perspective, I don't know what does. Um, and so from the Antarctic to the high desert in Chile, uh, this is sort of the poster child of the project. Um, so this, this uh, strange-looking plant is called the Ureta, and it, what looks like moss covering rocks is actually a shrub. Um, it's made up of thousands of branches, and at the end of each branch is a cluster of, small, of uh, tiny green leaves that are quite hard. And it's very densely packed together, um, so much so that you could actually stand on top of it if you wanted to try that, which I wouldn't recommend because it also lives at 15,000 feet elevation, which is rather dizzying. Um, and this also happens to be a relative of parsley, which I find funny. Um, <laughs> and there are other individuals you can see, actually, you can see um, behind there. So there actually are a number of, of ureta plants that, that live in this region and, and certain other areas in that um, high elevation desert in South America. So I actually traveled here with um, an expert in the, the local flora. And since, um, ha since having this photograph up on my website, a number of people have, have sent me photos of other ureta plants. So there might be some older ones out there. Um, but just uh, any ideas on what this is? This is um, this is actually a baby ureta. Um, so, they, so on average, they increase about 1.5 centimeters in height a year. So that might help put our large friend into perspective. And the bristlecone pine, so the talk wouldn't be complete without uh, talking about the bristlecone, which I know is near and dear to the hearts of, of Long Now and to me as well. Um, so the bristlecone pine um, are, you know, most people, I think this audience is probably better educated than most, but uh, most people are aware of the Methuselah tree. Um, but when I spoke with uh, Tom Harlan, who's one of the uh, preeminent researchers in, in the bristlecones, he told me that back in, this was back in 2006, he actually told me that they had already discovered a tree that was around 5,000 years old that was using a combination of core samples and radiocarbon dating. Um, but what was more interesting is that he told me there was no reason to believe that we've actually found the oldest bristlecone. Um, there are thousands of them, which is good news. Um, but that, that really struck me because this was early on in my project when I, when I made this photograph. And you know, I think I just had the sense that, of course, the science has been done, but it, it isn't necessarily. And that was actually sort of a wonderful door opening. Um, 
So Tom had suggested that I walk around in, in the White Mountains in the, in the park there and to look out for the knobby knees of these trees. Um, so if you're ever looking, if you're ever taking a walk amongst the bristle, bristle cones, take a look, keep a look out for those knobby knees and you're going to find some of, of the oldest trees. Um, and of course they subsist on, on very limited nutrients and, and they're shutting down non-essential systems. Um, and, you know, I just had to bring up some recent news, which some of you might be aware of as well, which is not the greatest news, um, but just that the bristle cones are actually um, in some danger right now. They are being attacked by the white pine blister rust, um, as well as the pine bark beetle, which, which is actually native, but its population has increased as the climate is getting warmer. Um, but it, it can't be all bad news. I actually spoke with um, someone named Jim Peerless, who's a forestry expert back, uh, back east, and he actually told me that his father remembers when the blister rust had invaded the Berkshires back in the 50s, and um, it was in epidemic proportions, and the state of Connecticut actually hired his whole family, that's a family business, um, to hike through the mountains and physically pull up the wild currant bushes that were host uh, to the blister rust. And that actually got rid of the problem for over 50 years. Um, so I don't know that removing the blister rust by hand would be a feasible approach for helping the bristle cones, but it was nice to hear that this hands-on approach actually proved effective in that case. Um, so again, we're in the 5,000-year range. So I wanted to, uh, you know, take a step back and look at what was going on with, with humans around 5,000 years ago. Um, we have the first Egyptian hieroglyphics, um, work started on Stonehenge, the Mayan calendar starts, and then use of the wheel and uh, cuneiform. Um, and then we're in prehistorical times. So, and this is, you know, these, and this was, these were all the young ones in my project. So it's sort of interesting to put into perspective, you know, we had the, this, uh, this was recent news that found the, the world's oldest shoe, um, and then, of course, this door that was found in Switzerland around 5,000 years old. Um, so I want to jump to nearly 10,000 years. Um, so this is a clonal tree. And I'm going to describe this a little bit more as, as we go. But um, clonal organisms are reprodu reproducing vegetatively. So their DNA is not combining with any other DNA in order to create a new organism. But instead, it's continuing to do things like send up a new shoot, which, which this tree is doing. Um, so this is a 9,550-year-old uh, spruce. And it lives high on a plateau in Sweden. And it was actually just discovered a couple of years ago. Um, and like many of the oldest living things, um, it's kept secret from the public for its own protection. Um, the, but the biologist who discovered it told me that that spindly growth that you see in the center um, is actually relatively new. In fact, it might only be around 40 years old and, was, and is caused by a change in the vegetation zone. So as it's gotten warmer, this tree is getting taller. Um, so before, you know, 50 years ago, you just would have seen that mass of um, branches here at the bottom persisting for 9,950 years. So, you know, sometimes we don't even have to have direct contact with these organisms to have a very real effect on them. Um, 
So back in California, again, we have a couple here that are in the Mojave Desert. Um, and this is a clonal creosote bush that's around 12,000 years old. And you all have seen the creosote bush. They're ubiquitous. Um, but these clonal bushes, what they're doing is expanding outward from an original center. And that's, a, again, it's all, in this case, all interconnected still. So it's that same um, genetically identical individual that has lived for 12,000 years. Um, and it's growing very, very slowly. Um, so it's not big and flashy. Um, it's living in a place where other things um, have trouble surviving, let alone thriving in this way. Um, and it also has a, a friend about a mile away. Um, I think they're friends. Um, this is the uh, clonal Mojave yucca. It's a little bit older. Um, it's, a, it's a little bit over 12,000 years. And you can see behind it, um, there are a couple younger clones um, in that same circular growth pattern. Um, and these two organisms live on Bureau of Land Management land. Um, so that's really not the same thing as being protected in a national park. Um, in fact, this area is actually dedicated to recreational all-terrain vehicle use. Um, so there's, there's fences around, but I think we can do better. Um, excuse me. Um, so back in Africa, when I was tracking down the baobab trees, I had the opportunity to uh, meet with a botanist um, at the botanical garden um, in uh, Pretoria. And he told me about what I think is one of the most fascinating things that I've, I've learned on this project, which is this phenomenon of, of something they call an underground forest. Um, so this is a, a bushveld region, which um, is very dry and it's prone to a lot of fire. Um, and so a lot of organisms there have adapted in various ways, like growing very thick, uh, uh, thick skins, if you will. Um, but certain species of trees have actually adapted to go underground. So if this is the crown of the tree and this is the ground, underground. So that whole bulk of the roots and the trunk and the branches have all migrated out of harm's way. And I mean, I just thought that was just absolutely, absolutely remarkable. So when a fire roars through, you know, it's like the equivalent of getting your eyebrows singed. You know, it can recover very easily. Um, and this is um, and these, again, are growing clonally, sending out new shoots, and the oldest of which are known to be 13,000 years old. Um, and these were actually discovered um, not first by scientists, but rather um, farmers and people building the roads. Um, the people building the roads thought they were just going to pull this little bush out and ended up with a, quite a mess on their hands. And for the farmers, it was a different problem. Um, some of... Um, the, the trees are actually poisonous to livestock. Um, so again, they tried to pull them out and couldn't. So what they did was act, they tend to uh, cut a little branch off and get it to pull in some water, and then they switch that water out for poison and just kill it in the ground. So again, um, not exactly getting the respect that one might hope. Um, Likewise, this is, uh, back in the U.S., this is the box huckleberry, around 13,000 years old. Um, and it lives on private property. Um, so I w the owner was uh, kind enough to let me come, come visit and make some photographs. Um, but it's not currently protected. And um, this shrub is actually a relative of the blueberry. And there are some younger clones that are protected under the Forest Service. Um, and this was first discovered, um, I believe, around 50 years ago. 
Um, so, but let's take another jump in time. So what was going on 17,000 years ago? Um, well, we have the cave paintings at Lascaux and the closest human relative going extinct. 17,000 years ago, that's really not that long ago in the grand scheme of things. Um, so to jump to a somewhat blank slide, 43,000 years ago in Tasmania, there's something on my list that I haven't photographed yet. Um, and it's a shrub called King's Lomatia, or King's Holly. Um, and it's living in Tasmania on a very remote area. Um, and what's remarkable about this plant, which I hope you will uh, see next time I'm giving a talk, um, what's remarkable about this plant is it's the last known living individual of this uh, species. So it's lost the ability to reproduce sexually because there's only one of them. Um, so it just, if you see other examples of this plant, it's actually cuttings from it. Um, and it's just continuing to survive 43,000 years on its own. Um, and again, so to put this into a little bit more uh, perspective, um, anatomically modern humans originated in Africa about 200,000 years ago and started to, to spread between 50,000 and 100,000 years ago. So we're, we're digging a little deeper here, and I want to look at that 50 to 100 range. Um, Actually, let's jump to, to 80,000 years. Um, and this is actually, I think, one of the best examples on how to um, understand what a clonal colony is. Um, so what looks like a forest here could actually be considered one tree. And what I mean by that is that each tree that you see in this forest is actually a stem coming up from one uh, continuous root system. And this is in uh, Utah, and it's been living there for 80,000 years. Um, and so in theory, it could be immortal. It could just continue to send up new shoots. Um, it also happens to be male. Um, so this is actually... <laughs> This is actually another shot of, of Pando, just to help describe the, the, um, the size of it a little bit more. Um, so what you see in the back here, way at the back, is the original colony. And what you see here is this huge swatch in the middle that the Forest Service actually cut down in, a t in an attempt to stimulate new growth. Um, but what happened was the deer came in and ate all the saplings. So what did they do? They did it again, uh, but they put a fence up. And so now they actually did, so this is um, the new growth. And then behind, again, behind it is that original colony. And that's actually extends back behind where I made that photograph. Um, and so when you arrive at Pando, you actually see a sign there that says um, wood available, t free wood for uh, firewood. Um, so um, the, this, again, was a fairly recent discovery, I believe around 20 years ago, and um, I spoke to the scientist who discovered it, who does not feel it's gotten the attention it deserves. Um, in fact, its primary claim to fame is that it was once um, a postage stamp. Um, so, from 80,000 back to 100,000 years ago, this was um, one of the things that I photographed this September as well in the Mediterranean. Um, this is a clonal colony of seagrass that is thought to be 100,000 years old. 
Um, so this is actually living in protected in UNESCO protected waters um, that extend between um, the islands of Formentera and Ibiza of all places. Um, but it's actually threatened now by some invasive algae that stowed its way in on cruise ships. Um, but I was lucky enough to have the opportunity to actually join the scientists doing their field research, which they do once a year, and they study these plots of the seagrass and, um, and carefully count how many shoots are in these individual plots. And they actually discovered um, the age uh, quite by accident. So they found that um, in two plots that were extended by a considerable distance actually had the, the identical genetic makeup. Um, so you never know what you're going to find. Um, which brings us to um, what is most likely the oldest living thing on the planet. Um, this is an image that I made in um, a lab, the Niels Bohr Institute in uh, Copenhagen, um, of the Siberian actinobacteria, which is between 400,000 and 600,000 years old, so half a million years old. Um, and this was discovered by a team of planetary biologists who went to Siberia and um, took a core sample into the permafrost just to see what they could find. So they were looking for clues to life on other planets. And they ended up discovering this bacteria, which, you know, you hear about um, old bacteria and ice cores in Antarctica all, all the time. But what sets this apart is that it's actually doing DNA repair below freezing. So what that means is that it's been living and growing for half a million years. Um, so again, they didn't know what they were looking for, but they ended up making a very important discovery. Um, and this was only a few years ago again. Um, and I was fortunate enough, I think I was actually one of the first people that got to attempt to make a photograph of this bacteria um, because I ended up... Um, quite by accident, meeting one of the biologists. Uh, this was a team from um, MIT working with, with Niels Bohr. Um, I happened to be at a New Year's Eve party in Brooklyn, and somebody said, you have to go talk to this biologist. And sure enough, she was on the team that helped discover the bacteria. So again, it's just been a kind of remarkable where the information is coming from. Um, so... Um, here we are, the oldest living thing in the planet, but it's also one of the most vulnerable um, because if the permafrost melts, it won't survive. Um, so my research is not complete yet. Um, this is a map that I put together showing locations of, of all of the oldest living things, um, which, by the way, is a fluid list. Things, a number of things have been discovered since I started this project, and occasionally something is debunked and removed. Um, the blue flags here represent things that I've already photographed, so you can see I've gotten, gotten around. Um, and then the red flags represent the things that I have still yet to get to. Um, so I think I have about two more years left on this project, give or take, um, for this phase of it as any, at any rate. Um, but I do feel like this is probably life's work and nothing that I plan on, on giving up. Um, so you also see there are oldest living things on every continent. So two of the things that I'm two of the trips that I'm most excited for are um, Australia and Tasmania for that uh, King's Lomatia, which you saw, as well as some other clonal organisms, um, as well to, ch to check out those stromatolites. Um, and then probably what I'm most excited for is um, the chance to go to Antarctica, um, where there's 5,000-year-old moss banks living on the Antarctic Peninsula. So this was a complete surprise to find that out. So I'm definitely uh, 
looking forward to that. Um, so um, I just I'm at the point where I'm trying to look at what kind of lessons can we draw from from all of this data. I mean, as I said, you know, this project hasn't been done before, um, so this is really a sketch. So it's not um, it's not entirely accurate, but I wanted to um, illustrate some of of the patterns that I see emerging. Um, one is slow and steady growth um, as opposed to fast and furious. And, you know, of course, there are exceptions to every rule that I'm going to, to share with you because we do, as you saw, some of the largest organisms are also included on this list, but many of them are incredibly slow growing. Um, and a number of them endure um, extreme stress in fringe environments. Um, so they're surviving cold or drought or very high elevations. Um, um, as with uh, calorie-restricted diets, some of them have a very limited supply of nutrients. Um, so, you know, I, I looked at a few criteria here, um, including altitudes, the ones that are circled there, uh, the 5,000-plus 5, 5, feet in altitude, and then a few um, different uh, uh, climactic regions, um, climatic regions, excuse me. Uh, but I've basically been a bit of a one-woman research team here for a while now. So I'm hoping that researchers will start to pick up and run with some of these themes. Because again, I started this from the perspective of making um, an art project. Um, but after five years of work, I can say this. Uh, the oldest living things in the world are a record and celebration of our past. They're a call to action in the present, and they're a barometer of our future. Um, and personally, I think some of the best work, regardless of its discipline, um, excuse me, um, will answer some questions, but it will also ask several more. Um, and this project certainly asks more questions than I, can pro uh, can, than I could possibly answer. Um, but for me, it's involved a long look back um, and a broad look out from my initial area of comfort and expertise. Um, and my hope is that these organisms will continue to be around uh, to enjoy the first chimes of the 10,000-year clock. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. We have secret chairs here. Ah. Um, Lorraine Palmer asks, do redwoods reproduce clonally? And if so, who's, what's the oldest redwood tree ring? Well, let's break that question down. Um, I do not believe that any of the redwoods are reproducing clonally. I could be wrong. Um, the redwoods in general are not quite as old as the giant sequoias, though, of course, they are related. Um, there is, I believe, one redwood, at least, that meets that 2,000-year mark. Bob uh, Kopak says, um, an argument can be made that the first amoeba is still alive. Have you considered microscopic animal life and bacteria, presumably, uh, in a sense, or the original one is still around? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, I think that I've been, uh, in creating the scope of the project, one thing that I was trying to differentiate between is what organisms are very primitive and still maintain those primitive structures ver versus organisms that have mm -hmm. truly been around mm -hmm. for that full 2,000 plus time span. So an amoeba, I'm not sure if it would meet that criteria. Fair enough. But, uh, getting more technical question from Rupert Carlson. How do the oldest organisms avoid cancer? How do they avoid the Hayflick limit, telomeres and all that? And uh, does every cell contain telomeres? And you know, the kind of things we're studying aging in humans um, when we go to borrow some of these genes, <laughs> what are we looking for? What are their techniques of staying old? Well, I wish I could answer that question. I mean, I think that's actually the, one of the questions that this project asks, is how do they do it? Um, so again, I actually invite um, scientific research for, to back up and to create, to start to see what patterns might uh, emerge from looking at these different organisms. Because again, you have, you know, we see some groupings. We have the, the two to roughly 5,000 year group, and then we make a big jump to 10 to 13,000, and then another really big jump from that 43,000, which is um, sort of on its own, up to half a million. So it seems like there's some, something to decode there. Um, but again, I didn't actually learn that at uh, art school. So. <laughs> Are you veering in the direction of more art or more biology as time goes forward, do you think? Well, I like that, I, that they're together in this mm -hmm. project. And I really think that they're inseparable in terms of this work. Mm -hmm. um, one wouldn't be possible without the other. I could make landscape work, which I do. Um, but it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't contain the same impact. It wouldn't have the same message. Mm -hmm. um, and the titles of the work are actually part of the work. I, I consider them inseparable. So that mm -hmm. scientific information is vital to the, the overarching um, uh, message of, of the project. Yeah, I like the, the, I'm now reminded that just one photograph was untitled, and right. it's just rocks. And that, yes, exactly. So a lot of my landscape work is, I would say, landscapes that are dealing with philosophy, which is a little bit more mm -hmm. abstract than, uh, than this project. So here you are interacting with these scientists, <clears throat> and it, it looks like you've encountered something like what we've encountered with the Rosetta Project, where you know, we sort of went to linguists and said we want to collect all the languages in the world in one place, and basically found that that was academically not a subject. Right. <laughs> yes. And yeah. so you know, collecting uh, this whole category of long-lived organisms, I gather, was not a subject. Yes. So now it is, and you're talking to these scientists, and. Uh, are are they getting interested in this, and are they connecting with each other across the various subdisciplines and whatnot? I would say they're starting to, and that's actually been one of the most satisfying experiences I, I've had is when I get to say, like, hey, do you know about this research in Pretoria? And I get to connect some biologists mm -hmm. who, in turn, talk. So I'd say on a you know, very basic level, there are some conversations that have been facilitated through the project. Um, I hope that there will be more. Um, but that being said, I mean, really, I think there's this tendency to specialize, which I completely understand and is necessary. Um, although I have to tell you one little story. When I was in, um, in photographing the um, 
the fungus in Oregon, the, uh, the biologists were actually making fun of another biologist who wasn't with us um, because she only studied part of the fungus, and they thought that was really nerdy. <laughs> <laughs> Which nostril, as they say, your nose and throat. Yeah. Um, well, it occurs to me, you've got two more years to go on this project. I'll bet it's more than that. But it, it, <laughs> <laughs> so, But at some point, you're going to declare this is finished, and here's the book, and here's the slideshow. And what I would love to see at that point is a conference um, that somebody here might sponsor that would bring together all the scientists that you've encountered all this time Absolutely. in one place at one time where they would not only sort of enjoy and celebrate and tell stories about you know, when they took you out into the desert or whatever, but actually have a conference on uh, longevity in organisms. Absolutely. That's something I've thought about as mm -hmm. well, and I think it would be just an absolutely invaluable opportunity to start to facilitate a conversation between people that didn't necessarily even consider that uh, this work was happening on the other side of the world might be really relevant, and just to open up this idea that there could be an area, of, this new area of study, and uh, there's a lot of work to be done. You mentioned it was exobiologists who turned up one of these creatures. I guess it was the very old soil bacterium. Say more about what they're up to. The, the, I mean, you know. <laughs> the implications of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the famous problem with exobiology is it's a, uh, a science without a subject. Right. And, <laughs> and well, as we tried yet. to find one, <laughs> yeah. So was this the workaround for them? or uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> I, It could be. I mean, I think the hope is, well, I don't want, the hope is that something here will actually prove valuable in understanding that once we do, mm -hmm. when we do make that kind of discovery. Um, because one of the, I remember one of the, I mean, the Viking landing, or lander first went to Mars and so on, they were kind of digging in and adding water and seeing if anything grew and you know, basically doing things that would recognize life that we already knew about. And some scientists were saying, um, how boring. Let's try to find a way to discover life that we don't know about. And how strange can it get? And sort of since then, there's been more and more science that shows that life can get very strange indeed. Yes. Uh, do you get a sense from these characters that there's more weirdness to be found? Absolutely. Um, yes. I mean, one of the things that I've thought about that I've learned a little bit about but haven't fully researched is the idea of extremophiles. Right. Um, so I think that would just be fascinating subject matter. And well, uh, presumably, I mean, you showed that chart in, in extreme situation. This was how bristlecone pines were discovered, as you yeah. may know. The story is that there was this guy who had been studying, I think, limber pines and realized that the ones that had the most growth rings skinny little trees, nevertheless, we're at tree line. And so we thought, okay, uh, extreme situation, tree line situation, that's where you find the oldest trees. And then he started exploring tree lines all over the West and discovered bristlecone pines and National Geographic story happened and it's, uh, now we're building a clock there. So. <laughs> Obviously. Yeah. <laughs> so extremophiles, I mean, partly extremophiles are what turned up the, here's a proper word, archaea, the really most seemingly ancient form of mm -hmm. bacteria, mm -hmm. rather different than the other not-so-ancient bacteria. And so 
are you going to be hanging out in hot springs and under glaciers and stuff like that trying it's to find po- it seems <laughs> possible um, one of the things that caught my attention recently was the discovery of the carbon breathing microbes in yeah. Antarctica I mean I just it really that kind of blew my mind so. okay that sounds like a way to solve climate change because they, they <laughs> maybe <laughs> they breathe they breathe carbon it sounds like they're the air captures it's called what do they do with the carbon once they get it I'm actually not sure I have to call in an expert. Um, any experts? Carbon breathing microbes? Yeah, crowdsourcing yeah. and carbon breathing <laughs> <Yeah>. bacteria. <laughs> Wrong crowd. No. <laughs> Next question. Um, Sally says, what a great talk. Thank here, you. Here, here. Um, and then quotes, hmm, 9,550-year-old tree. Would you briefly speak about how one would get such a precise age? P.S. comment uh, when you said... Lycanotomy or lichen... Lycanometry. Lycanometry. <laughs> I heard lycanomony, the study of Facebook. Um, <laughs> never mind that. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Which also may become ancient in 9,000 years. But, um, okay, how do these precise ages come out of these things? Um, so in this case, um, there was actually uh, radiocarbon dating of samples at the site. Um, and there hmm. were, um, were other... There were other trees that have, that aren't actually um, alive right now that dated back even further. So a lot of times with these really old things that you're seeing a combination of radiocarbon dating and then um, observing them over long periods of time. So you're measuring a growth rate and then extrapolating the data. And then these, these different methods often prove uh, to be checks and balances to see how accurate you are. So looking at dendrochronology and radiocarbon dating, for instance. A uh, question I realized from Adrian Coffer that I also had is, how, how are the cl- clonal organisms dated? How, oh, so that's a similar, that was actually that combination, the same same answer applies. They're all done a little bit differently. Um, and I should mention that what I try to do is find the scientific papers and then in turn track down the actual sciences, scientists who are doing um, the research. And so sometimes you can I actually see them in the field making their notations and pulling out rulers and that sort of thing. So it's, it's a combination of things, but, you know, in some cases these are educated guesses. I think I know the answer to this one from Anonymous. Why do people, <laughs> big red letters, why do people like and tend to make things older than they really are when they're talking about the olive tree over here? You know, it's a 6,000-year-old olive tree, you know, lady. Uh, what why, are they doing? Why do you think? Um... <laughs> it's exactly what the docents and the clock are going to do. Uh, <laughs> people make up stories that are, uh, you know, the bigger and better you can make it, the, yeah. the bigger tip you're going to get from the tourists, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you, you, nobody ever says, well, this is the second oldest tree in the world. Exactly. <laughs> it's true. No, if you, in fact, if you, if you Google oldest living tree, you'll see a lot of dispute <laughs> over that, so, including amongst the scientists who know better. <laughs> hmm. Lorraine Palmer says, uh, what would you say that since we know so little about the sea environment that you may find major new additions 
and your project lives coming from the oceans as that research goes forward? Yeah, that seems entirely possible. I mean, especially with research around the sea vents, but again, we're talking extremophiles there, which seems to be another project, perhaps. Um, but I actually found out about the corals late in the game. Mm. Um, so I knew about the seagrass for a while, but it was difficult to track down um, the researchers, because that's such new research. Um, but a biologist um, contacted, me, contacted me just a couple of weeks ago to, to tell me about this cold water coral that is um, off the coast of Scandinavia that he said was around between four and 5,000 years old, um, but it's in frigid water. So really it requires this uh, submersible device and remote imaging. Mm-hmm. Yep. There's a quest. And yeah. quest question here, um, are there any older organisms that you've heard about and set out to find and just couldn't get to them? Um, I think I've actually made it to all of them. Um, not that there haven't been obstacles, mm-hmm. certainly. Um, the Wellwitchia, for instance, I had um, been talking to the Desert Research Center there for about six months, and when I arrived in Namibia, they sent me an email and said, oh, yes, we've uh, left the country for a while. Um, but I actually ended up tracking, uh, finding a, a local naturalist, self-taught, who found the Wellwitchia, although was a wealth of misinformation about it. Say a little bit about that, the sort of the local folks versus the remote academic folks. Do they <laughs> connect? Do they have completely different knowledge domains? What goes on there? Yeah, I think, well, this sort of ties into the question about why is everything so much older in mm-hmm. <laughs> these cases. Um, he told stories. There's, you know, folklore about how the Wellwitchia will come and eat you as a child if you're bad. Um, he was doing things like sticking meat thermometers in the sand and saying that it was, it was 160 degrees out. So his methodology <laughs> was questionable, but it was interesting. Um, but, you know, the Wellwitchia is actually the national plant of Namibia, so it's something that's really beloved of the uh, community there. So. It's so ugly. It's wonderful. It's <laughs> yes. got to be the world's ugliest <laughs> Only a mother plant. could love it. <laughs> Chris Lombardi asked an interesting question, talking about humongous fungus. Um, what about that lor- largest organism, the mushroom under Michigan? Yeah, that's a, it's the same type of fungus, but the one in Oregon is actually larger and older. Say again about size. How big? I don't think I said. Okay. Oh, <laughs> I don't want to be... You're I, you hiding know, this? No. <laughs> I would ask the internet. Okay. I actually, I'm sorry, I don't actually remember the size of it offhand. I don't want to misspeak. Well, there is a sort of question comment from, it looks like, Mary Hunter. Um, comment on your decision should not provide a sense of size and scale in your photographs. Yes, um, that was definitely a choice that I made. Um, in part... Um, for a couple of reasons. One is that I sort of think of these images as portraits of these plants, um, so I definitely am approaching the photography um, from some artistic standpoint. And mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of mystery involved in finding, tracking these things down, finding out what they were to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to sort of share the mystery of that experience a little bit. So I didn't set out to create National Geographic photos or scientific photos with, you know, with all the, the measurements down the side. So I'd perf- I'd, that's why I was thinking of them as a portrait that hopefully that you can get into the spirit of, of what these organisms are, but then balance that against the scientific information. And, you know, I welcome you to, to search on these other facts. Um, mm-hmm. So it's, it's interesting, but, you know, I also um, had, to limit, mm-hmm. I had to limit my scope of what I was doing in order to... Uh, 
Well, there you are. Focus. I mean, you've hiked two days into the weird country, and uh, you finally got into the organism, and there it is. You're making multiple exposures. Um, we're seeing just one of them, and, yes. and you know about the yeah. other. Did you ever have, have a temptation to just put a meter stick in the picture with one exposure, so for the, you know, not for the emotional viewers, but the scientific viewers? Um, I do sometimes have points of reference in the mm -hmm. photos, so, and it is something that I actually do discuss with the biologists, especially mm -hmm. if I'm there in the field with them. Mm -hmm. So occasionally, um, some of my images will end up in reports, in which case we'll discuss um, mm -hmm. the size and scale of them, mm -hmm. but I just consider that a separate purpose. So I could also imagine in, the, for example, the, the web version that, that if they exist, uh, that, you know, that there's a scrim or an overlay that one could drop on that would give a scale or something Absolutely. like that. Absolutely. I'm definitely not opposed in mm -hmm. any sense of, of everybody having this information. And I look forward to a time when I can create um, mm -hmm. a digital version because I, you know, I would like to provide something where people can explore in a nonlinear fashion through whatever avenue that interests mm -hmm. you. So mm -hmm. if you're interested in, you know, we want to look at deserts, you want to look at a certain elevation, if you want to look uh, based on age, that you could explore in all of these different ways. Mm -hmm. So hopefully that is to come. Uh, Carter Brooks raises a, quick, raises a question. He says, which are the greater threats to these old living things, climate change, and et cetera, or lack of awareness of them, or what? And, and the temptation of us is when showing wildlife pictures, which you are, um, is you know, to sort of carry away the worry that uh, we're not going to see these things again, long-lived as they are, it will be terrible to lose them because of this, that, or the other thing. And um, on the one hand, that's sort of you know, an easy way to end the evening, and everybody goes out worried about something. On the other hand, <laughs> uh, one could say, these are very tough creatures. Killing them is no cinch. Yeah. Uh, so you know, where, are, where do we come out on that? Well, I would recommend optimism, <laughs> um, but responsible optimism. Um, you know, I can't hmm. answer scientifically, you know, what's the greatest threat, and it's different for different organisms. But I think there's a lot to be learned from them, and a lot of them, like back to the fungus, for instance, that doesn't, um, doesn't take its prey until after it's reproduced. I mean, these are pretty resilient things. These are really... Um, or the, actually the, um, the clonal colony of aspen trees actually moves slightly up and down the mountain based on um, climate. So as it's getting warmer, it's getting, it's moving. It's the, it tends to have more growth towards the northern slope um, where it's more, um, uh, where it better suits, um, uh, um, better suits uh, its growth. So hmm. these things are, they're doing subtle but very important things that, you know, they are... They want to, I don't want to impose consciousness on them, but they want to survive. So, what one gets a sense, you know, if, if climate change is gradual enough that some of these clonal uh, you know, set of aspens is marching gradually north, <laughs> 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 as well as uphill. Um, creosote. You've been to a creosote place. I've heard creosote described as the, the most vile sort of desert gobbling plant there is. Where creosote is, nothing else is or wants to be. Is that what you found out there? Um, well, I mean, it definitely was the, the dominant life form uh, where I was. I mean, and then, you know, sometimes you... You got a funny question. 
Why do you still? No, no, go ahead. I'm sorry. I'm I'll, I'll show you in a minute. <laughs> no, I mean, I mean, the, the, again, to keep going back to the fungus, which has been such a good example, it's mm. predatory. It's something that the forest, uh, the forestry service there is actually trying to contain. I mean, mm. they're not going to kill it, but at the same time, it's something that they don't want to spread. And invasive species, again, when we were talking about uh, with mm. bristlecone pine, um, and even the um, the seagrass, the hundred thousand year old seagrass is getting inva- is in being invaded by foreign algae. Um, and you can see it in different places. I didn't share it this evening, but you know you can see where it's actually taking over. Uh, Kevin's question that made me jump is, uh, he's a photographer, uh, why do you still use film instead of digital? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so good. <laughs> I'm not giving up on the film. <laughs> um, so almost all of the images that you saw tonight were um, shot with film, um, with the exception of the underwater shots and the uh, microscopy. And in part, um, you know, I still make prints. You know, I, I, sh- I exhibit the work in art galleries, and, and they're, they're quite large. They're 40 by 50. Mm. Um, and I shoot medium format film, and then I scan the negatives, actually. So I'm using both analog and digital processes for it. Um, medium to, format, two and a quarter, two and uh, a quarter? Six, seven uh-huh. is the format. And it's a rangefinder camera. It sort of looks like a big Leica. Um, Hard to carry two days into the... It's heavy, yes. I've spent some time uh, in physical therapy with the herniated disc. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, <laughs> The film, I still feel, from an artistic standpoint, is just, it, it's more beautiful. The, pro, the end product is, oh, we have some photographers in the audience. So. <laughs> um, I, I think that the quality of it, the quality of the light, um, I always shoot with natural light. I never use flash. And I think that mm. film still is, um, just captures the, the, both the tonal range and the technical sides of it, as well as aesthetically has um, a warmer look to it. You might expect somebody who's looking for really old things to be kind of traditional. <laughs> Speaking of which, a uh, fellow named Dan says, uh, how's your perception of death evolved as a result? How old are you? Deaf, not deaf. Yeah, how old are you? No, deaf. <laughs> how old are you? I'm 35. Okay, I'm 71. And <laughs> is it a contest? <laughs> nobody here is 100,000 no. or expects to be. No. So, uh, you know, death looms. Does that come into all of this as you're looking at these things? I would definitely say that my perception of time is different because I have something that hmm. to anchor to. That I think it's really hard to hold on to this idea of deep time or anything beyond the five minutes from now, the five minutes ago. Um, you know, physiologically, it's difficult for us. Mm-hmm. Our brains don't want to do that. Um, and I think that by doing this research, I start. I am continually pulled back into this deeper timeline. So mm-hmm. it definitely affects my sense of of longevity in general, the, of the human lifespan. Um, that being said, I'm not thinking like I'm about to turn 100. So. Mm-hmm. Um, Yes and no, I guess, is the short answer. Well, in a way, the, the picture, the idea that got me was the yew tree that attracted a churchyard around it. Now, the question in my mind is, you know, whether there's this big yew tree and it's time to make a church, uh, let's build it there where that big yew tree is, or is it the, there's a you know, set of yew trees and, and, okay, that one will be in the churchyard and we'll build the churchyard and then all the other yew trees get cut down, but the one in the churchyard doesn't. What do you think came first on that? 
Oh, I mean, I think that it is true that once they were in the church, I believe my my understanding of the sequence was, mm. you know, there were the yew trees were there. They chose to build these churches where the yew trees were, and then over time, a number of those other yews have been cut down, and then they in turn became the ones that survived today were protected by by the churches. So here's the link to death. Um, <laughs> Graveyards are famously places where field biologists go to find out what the landscape was like back before yes. cattle and everything else, yeah. because the cattle, you know, the, the graveyards are always fenced. Nobody likes to see a cow on a grave. <laughs> Generally not. And as a result, you know, the tall grass prairie or whatever it is is there in the graveyard if it's been loved and protected over time. And uh, what does that say? It says that. The churchyard, there's some, whenever the sacred in some even modest sense meets the landscape, the kind of organisms that you're talking about feel at home there hmm. and vice versa. So uh, maybe that's your next project, Graveyards of the World. It could be. I actually saw firsthand when I was in Greenland, um, hmm. the, the archaeologist that I was camping with dug out a, a Norse gravesite, and every day another skeleton was emerging. It was, uh, it was um, at this uh, lookout point, and I mean, that was a really remarkable experience, like talking about the history and these people that actually tried to settle in this incredibly inhospitable climate, and there and, they were. <laughs> and they didn't and do they, so that's well. That's the, the area that eventually they failed, and, 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 and it's one of the yes. stories in Collapse. Yeah. Well, here's for organisms that don't collapse. Thank you for coming. Thank you. This seminar about long-term thinking was brought to you by the Long Now Foundation. Thanks to Fora TV, you can see high-quality videos of the talks online by joining Long Now as a member at longnow.org. Thank you for listening. I'm Stuart Brand.